And I am excited to be back in the pulpit today. I've not preached in several weeks now because of the holidays and and we took a quick vacation and then we got COVID ourselves as a family and dealt with that. And so I'm so thankful to be back this Sunday and to be back in God's word, being able to teach here in the book of Colossians. As Justin mentioned, we took a break, a brief break from the book of Colossians. Uh, But now here we are picking back up at the end of chapter 3. And so just to put us back in this book and relocate us in the book of Colossians, um, ever since the start of chapter 3, what Paul has been addressing is what our new life in Christ looks like. Paul began chapter 3 with this statement. He says at the beginning of chapter uh, chapter 3, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ... So Paul now is considering what life looks like for those of us who, by faith in Jesus, are experiencing this new resurrection life in him. And Paul has been unpacking that for us, just showing us what that new life looks like. In the first four verses of chapter 3, we learned together a few weeks ago that this new life in Christ reorients our desires. It changes the things that we seek after. And it also renews our minds. Then we learned in verses 5 through 17 of chapter 3 that this new life in Christ also reforms our behaviors. It impacts the way that we actually live and it changes our attitudes toward people and and really reshapes the interpersonal relationships that we have here in the body of Christ. And now finally in the last section, Paul here is going to begin addressing how this new life in Christ even reorients our relationships. And Paul turns his attention now to these central, fundamental relationships, the relationships that exist in our own homes. And first up, Paul wants to deal with marriage. We see that in verses 18 and 19. Paul also deals with parenting and with children. That's in verses 20 and 21. And then lastly, he deals with the relationships between slaves and their masters in the final verses all the way into chapter 4, verse 1. Now, obviously, the relationships between slaves and masters in the ancient world were work relationships, but they were still a part of the household. The way that households operated in the ancient world is that it included slaves or servant classes who worked alongside and with the family. So for us, when we get to that section, we're going to be talking about that in the context of work relationships, which are outside of our homes generally. But again, for Paul, what he's doing here is he's shifting the focus of the church on the household dynamics and relationships. And our families and our homes are so critical that we're actually going to slow down in this section. We're going to take this piece by piece, and this is going to be sort of a a mini three-week series on uh, family and on work. And so today we're just going to deal with marriage, and then next Sunday we'll deal with parenting and children, and the Sunday after that we're going to deal with work relationships. So today we're going to focus in with our time on Paul's teaching on marriage. Now, for some of you, you hear me say that, and you're excited, okay? Your marriage is great. Your marriage is strong. Your marriage is vibrant and healthy, and you're sitting here going, awesome. This is fun to talk about this. Who knows? Maybe there's even a couple of little pointers or things that now prepared to get really ashamed 
and discouraged. You almost want to just crawl out the back of the church right now. Because maybe your marriage is a mess. Or may, maybe you've been divorced. You've had a marriage that has actually saying to you this morning by faith and trust that God is going to be with you and God can restore what has been damaged. Now for the young people here, the teens, the children in this room, marriage is so far off, it's something that you're not even really thinking about. And I just want to encourage you, even if you're seven years old in here this morning, pay attention, store these things in your heart, treasure these things in your heart. Because God wants to deposit wisdom in your life right now that will be in decades to come. Finally, I realize that there are some this morning who are coming here, and for you, marriage is a dream that has not yet been realized. And so as we enter into a conversation about marriage, all it does for you is bring up unanswered prayers. And, and there's a temptation to be given over to discouragement or depression here as we talk about marriage. And to you, I just want to say this. There is no good thing that God is withholding from you. The psalmist tells us this in Psalm 84, 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold for those who walk uprightly. What that means is that if marriage is ultimately what's best for you, then you can trust that God will provide a spouse for you in his timing. Continue demonstrating your faith through patience and store up this teaching in your heart. And if marriage is not ultimately best for you, then you can trust that God is going to grow you in your contentment in singleness and God is going to grow you in your fruitfulness as you serve the Lord and live your life for the Lord much like Jesus as a single man or woman. Okay, let's get into this subject of marriage. Let me reread the two verses, 18 and 19. Paul writes this, he says, Wives, Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, the Bible has a lot of teaching on marriage. Uh, some famous passages in the New Testament that come to mind are 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 3. So there's a lot of information about marriage. But it's interesting that as we come to Colossians, Paul gives wives one sentence, and Paul gives husbands one sentence. And so we're this morning going to really zero in on what is the message to the Colossian believers that Paul wanted to communicate about marriage, and, and therefore what is it that we need to hear from the Lord today about marriage? Well, let's zero in and see what he has to say. He begins with wives, and so will we in verse 18. There is only one instruction here for wives in Colossians. The instruction is this, submit to your husbands. Now, the word submit means to rank beneath or to yield to another's authority. That's what the term means, to rank beneath or to yield to another's authority. So, submission, when we talk about submission, what we are talking about is the way that two people stand in relation to another. You understand what I'm saying? We're talking about the way that two people stand in relation to each other. Person A 
stands in a submissive role toward person B. And therefore, person B stands in an authoritative role in relation to person A. And so what Paul is saying here is, wives, submit to your husbands, and therefore what is implied here is what Paul makes explicit in 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5, namely, that the husband is the head of the wife. So again, submission is about the way that two people stand in relation to each other. What Paul is concerned with here in Colossians in marriage is the structure of marriage. What Paul teaches here and what is taught elsewhere we can call male headship. We see this idea from Genesis to Revelation when it comes to marriage. Back in Genesis, when God instituted the first marriage, we see male headship. In fact, you'll remember significantly that when Eve and Adam sinned, although Eve was the first one who sinned, when, at, when God came to meet with Adam and Eve, he directly addressed Adam, which communicates again this idea that even though Eve was as at fault as Adam was, God came to Adam as the head of the relationship. Now, it needs to be noted that submission is not a universal role that is reserved for women, and leadership is a universal role that is reserved for men. We find, in fact, in this very passage, as it comes to the relationship between parents and children, that the wife, just like the husband, stands in relation toward their children in the position of authority, and children stand in a position of submission. Furthermore, it was not only the master of the home who slaves submitted to in the ancient world, but the mistress of the home as well. Women can and do operate in positions of leadership and authority in all sorts of spheres of life, with others standing in submissive roles in relation to them. Submission is something that all people and all Christians are called to in many spheres of life. For example, in Romans chapter 13, Paul says to everyone, let all of us be subject to the governing authorities. So men and women who are not in government authoritative positions stand in submission to those who are. All of us do. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. That would be male and female servants standing in submission toward male or female masters. In the book of Hebrews, notice that Christians are called to submit to their pastors. We read this in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So within the church, men and women are submissive to the pastors of the church. And most significantly, all Christians are called to be submissive to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5.24, we read this. Now as the church submits... To Christ. So my point in saying all of that is again, submission is not some role that women live in 
exclusively and universally, and leadership is something that men live in exclusively and universally. When we talk about submission, again, we're talking about the way two people stand in relation to each other in a particular context. It's not just a woman thing. But in marriage, God has structured that particular relationship in such a way that he calls the wife to submit to her husband. Now, this begs the question, of course, of why does anybody have to have a role of submission and somebody have to have a role of authority in a marriage? C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, the great Christian theologian, Address that question head-on in his essay on Christian marriage, and I think he gets it exactly right. Here's what he says, and I'll put this on the screen. And I quote, The need for some head follows from the idea that marriage is permanent. Of course, as long as the husband and wife are agreed, no question of a head need arise. And we may hope that this will be the normal state of affairs in a Christian marriage. But when there is a real disagreement, What is to happen? Talk it over, of course. But I am assuming they have done that and still failed to reach agreement. What do they do next? They cannot decide by a majority vote, for in a council of two there can be no majority. Surely only one or other of two things can happen. Either they must separate and go their own ways, or else one or other of them must have a casting vote. If marriage is permanent, one or other party must, in the last resort, have the power of deciding the family policy, end quote. So Lewis's point is that if marriage is permanent, and it should be, then somebody ultimately will need to have that final say, to put it that way. Because if there comes those moments when that disagreement is so pronounced and resolution cannot come, the only other option would be fine. Then you go your way and I go mine. But marriage is too precious and too significant for God to be okay with that. Now the fact that submission is something that both men and women are called to and that all of us live in a complex web of relationships where sometimes we're in a position of submission and other times we're in a position of authority, should dispel us of the myth that submission means inferiority. Oftentimes, tragically, that's how people conceive of the concept of submission. That submission speaks of inferiority versus superiority. But that doesn't follow in any other area where a person is submissive to another. Are you and I inferior to the mayor or to the sheriff or to the governor of our state? That's not even the right question to ask. Because how would you even measure something like that? I mean, think about, the, think about it this way. Elon Musk used to be a citizen here in California. Elon Musk is wealthier, more powerful, and more influential than any of the three offices I just mentioned any of the people that have those positions. So Elon Musk is superior to them in power, influence, authority, you could say, and wealth. Furthermore, plenty of people within the great state of California are smarter or more intelligent than people with better mental health 
There are people who are morally superior to people who are in elected office. You could literally look at any metric that you can think of and you can find that there are people who are superior in those areas to somebody who is in authority over us in civic government. Or to use another example, is every member in a church inferior to the pastors of the church? That's not rhetorical. (laughs) The answer is, of course not. That's a silly thing to think or to suggest. It's not about inferiority versus superiority. There are plenty of members in churches who have a greater net worth than their pastors. There are plenty of members in churches who are more influential in the community and have more power, if you want to use a word like that, in the broader community than their pastors. Believe it or not, there are members in churches with healthier marriages than their pastors. There are people, I should whisper this, in churches who are godlier than their pastors. So in what sense could we say, well, pastors are superior people to the members of the church? These are the wrong questions. We're framing the questions wrong. What I'm trying to say to you is that submission is not about inferiority or superiority. Submission is about the way that two people stand in relation to each other in a particular context. Submission has to do with orderliness and functionality. Without authority, chaos ensues. But proper authority creates structure and order and stability and harmony. So we as the people of God, more than anybody else, have to do away with the idea that submission is a dirty word or that submission is somehow evil or wrong. It's helpful for us to remember That there is authority and submission even within the Godhead. Jesus, God the Son, submitted himself in the incarnation to the will of God the Father. John 6.38 says this, Jesus speaking, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If there was something inherently evil or degrading in submission then surely God the Son would not have submitted to God the Father. So we have to understand this, and we have to approach this not with these ideas that this is somehow communicating inferiority. Now coming back to marriage, I know that for so many people, the real fear when we talk about submission is a fear of an abuse of authority. It's a fear that if one person is submitted to another person, then there can be an abuse of power, and that is a legitimate fear. But to that, I want to just say two quick things. Number one, the Bible's vision of marriage is a vision in which two godly people are together, unified in a marriage relationship. What that means is you have two people who are filled with the Spirit of God, And you have two people who are equally submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the starting point for the framework of Christian marriage. The second thing that I would want to say to you is that no human authority is absolute. This is true in government. 
We are not in absolute submission to the government. The scriptures say that if it comes down to obeying God or obeying government, Christians are called to obey God. This is true in the church. No member in a church's submission toward the leaders of a church is absolute. If a pastor were to ask you to do something or demand that you do something that violates the word of God, your response is no. And in the home, authority and submission is not absolute. And so wives are not called to submit unconditionally to a husband if a husband is demanding that the wife do something that violates the word of God or if the husband is abusing his wife. And so submission is not ultimate and we must keep that in mind. Now in saying that, I want us to spend a couple of minutes before we turn our attention to husbands, sort of teasing out the implications of this, because I've belabored this point to try to make it clear sort of what Paul is saying here about the structure of marriage. And all I'm saying to you up to this point is that there is a structure and that God has established for us how husbands and wives relate to each other in marriage. But how does this dynamic actually play out? To answer that, we have to think more broadly about what the Bible says about marriage. Genesis 2.18, where God establishes the first marriage between Adam and Eve, is very significant. We read this there. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, when we think of the word helper, we can think of that in different ways. One of the ways to think about that is you can think of a helper like an assistant. So if you're on a job site, Bob has a construction company. If Bob has a helper in construction, we would think of that as the person when you're sitting there and you're driving nails and you say, hey, can you hand me a few more nails? So you would think of a helper in that sense as somebody who just sort of chips in a little bit to help you accomplish the thing that you want to do. Don't need them, but it's nice. It's helpful to have them. This way of thinking leads to a form of misogyny that the people of God have to steer clear from. And this is not the idea that the first two chapters of Genesis are explaining or fleshing out. The word fit in Genesis 2.18 is extremely important. The Hebrew word there, fit, literally means corresponds to. So this woman, Eve, this helper for Adam is fit for him, meaning that she corresponds to him. Meaning that she was designed with him in mind, and he was designed with her in mind. You can think about a power cord and an electrical receptacle. Both of those things were designed with the other one in mind. When we create power outlets on walls, those are designed with something that needs power and plugs into it in mind, and vice versa. And neither of those things would work properly or perform their function without the other. In other words, the idea of the word fit is that the wife is indispensable to the husband in order to carry out God's vision for family and for human flourishing. And I'm going to unpack that more in just a second. This is consistent also with what the Hebrew word helper actually means. In the Old Testament, a helper is one who provides aid 
or provides relief. And most notably in the Old Testament, the Lord himself, the God of all creation, is called by that exact same term. Here's Psalm 54, 4, for example. The psalmist writes, behold, God is my helper. And what does he mean by that? Does, does he mean, God, give me a few more nails? No. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Think about how significant that statement is. What, what the psalmist is saying is, if not for the Lord, my helper, I could not continue to survive. He is the upholder of my life. So this helper is not just someone who lightens your load or makes the task a little bit easier. This helper is someone who without you could not accomplish the task before you. And this is the picture that we get of a wife from Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Pause. Notice that human beings are God's image bearers. And there is no separation there between the sexes that he created them male and female in his image. So all of us are equal before God. All of us are image bearers. And together, men and women image forth God. Going on to verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Question. How could mankind have fulfilled its God-given mandate to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth without this helper who corresponds to the man? The answer, of course, is it couldn't happen. She is indispensable to him, a partner of equal significance in accomplishing God's mission in the world. In 1 Peter 3, 7, we read, Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands and wives are co-heirs of the grace of life. So putting these things together, when we think about marriage and when we think about what this looks like for a husband and wife to stand in relation to each other before God, you two are partners together working together for the glory of God. You are one team, or as the scriptures say it, one flesh with a unified purpose and mission in life. And so a healthy, godly marriage looks like this beautiful and cooperative partnership. Husband and wife animated by a shared vision and common goals for their home. If that's true, then there should be tons of agreement there should be an affirming of one another's gifts and skills and strengths and wisdom. There should be looking to one another as your most trusted advisor and counselor and enjoying one another as your most intimate friend. And with a husband and a wife viewing marriage that way, how often should a sharp disagreement arise? A disagreement that is so sharp with such strong differences of opinion that after praying together, after seeking counsel from a godly friend or a pastor, you two cannot find a way to move forward. 
I would submit to you that should be so rare in a healthy, godly marriage. And in those prayerfully rare moments where you two cannot come to a point where one of you says, you know what, we'll go your way. God has given us a way forward. And we find it right here in Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting or proper in the Lord. A submissive wife then need not be interpreted in all of the misogynistic caricatures that have been placed on women. She speaks when she's spoken to. She waits on her husband hand and foot. She never shares her opinions. She never disagrees. She does not ever work outside of the home. Nowhere is that more clearly dismissed than in Proverbs 31, where we are given an example of the quintessential wife in Hebrew, Hebrew literature. What the author of Proverbs actually calls the excellent wife. And I'm going to read this section really, really quickly because it's so important and just comment briefly on it. But I want you to see and think about when the Bible talks about what an excellent wife looks like. I want you to see how vastly different Proverbs 31 is from so many of the caricatures that are often placed on women, particularly in conversations about submission. Here's what Proverbs 31 says, starting in verse 10. An excellent wife. So this is not an average or kind of, I don't know, give her a C-plus wife. This is the dream woman. This is the perfect example. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. First thing to note, verse 11. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. So she is deeply trusted by her husband. Verse 12, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. So we see she's hardworking and she's industrious. Verse 14, she is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. So she's resourceful. Verse 15, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So she provides for family and staff. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. So she owns and operates a business. Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She's a strong woman. Verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. So she has business savvy in verse 18. Verse 19, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. So she's generous and charitable. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. And so we see that she's prepared and unafraid. Verse 22, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple, meaning that she is well off and affluent. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. So she's diversified. Now we see she has multiple business ventures going on simultaneously. 
And verse 25, it says, Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So she is a competent and wise teacher of others. And verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So she manages her home well. In verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. So she is praised and affirmed within her home. Verse 30, it says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Her priority is her godliness over her looks. And finally, in 31, this all amounts to this. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. That means that the entire community, and particularly at the gates, the leaders of the entire community, respect and honor and praise her. How do these things fit together? Not with the kinds of caricatures that are often communicated about a submissive wife. This is a woman who is flourishing and contributing to the flourishing of her family and her broader community, who is a teacher, who is full of wisdom, who is deeply trusted by her family, her friends, and the broader community. It's a beautiful picture. As I move out of this section on the structure of marriage, let me just close by saying this. I have yet to meet a woman who was unhappy to come alongside and submit to a man who exhibited Christ-like leadership. A man who took the initiative to lovingly lead, sacrifice, guide, direct, discipline, and instruct his family. I've never, listen, in, in whatever it's been, 15 years of ministry, I've not sat across my desk from one woman who said, that's the problem. He's just so darn godly. I, I, I don't want to live like this. But I have, and this is going to transition now into the men, I have met numerous women who have been deeply hurt and discouraged over their husband's passivity, laziness, ungodliness, and indecisiveness. God has given us distinct but beautiful and wonderful roles within the context of marriage. And for those of us who by faith say, God, I'm going to take you at your word and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to give myself to this. There is rich reward and blessing and joy to be found. Husbands. Verse 19. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now let me say this before I speak to the men about this section. I am not preaching to you from a place of perfection. Notice that my wife is not in this room. No, I'm just kidding. There's a good explanation for that. She's teaching children's ministry today. But I am not preaching to you from a place of perfection. I have not arrived. And so no man in this room should sit here as we talk about what God says about marriage and project that onto me and go, oh great, I guess Pastor Daniel's the example I'm supposed to live up to. That would be foolish and wrong. And let me also say, no wife should sit here right now 
because we just talked to wives, and now we're going to talk to husbands. No wives should sit here and go, well, if only my husband were like Pastor Daniel, this would go a lot smoother. Don't go there. I am a sinner. I am not a perfect husband. I need grace every single day, and my heart's desire is to grow. And I was talking to Ryan about this this week, that even in preparing this sermon this week, the Spirit of God was showing me so many things. Daniel, you need to work here. You need to grow here, convicting my heart. And so my prayer for all of us, men especially, because we're getting into that now, that your heart would be in a place where you're humble and you're pliable and you're open. Okay? Okay, two instructions for husbands. One sentence, two instructions. And this section will be a little bit shorter, so don't worry, we're not going to be here till 2 o'clock. Number one, Love your wives. Now, the word love in Greek there is the word agape. And as many of you know, agape is the love. It's the, the, the word in Greek used to describe the love that God himself has for his people. That's why it's not surprising in Ephesians 5.25 when Paul writes there, Husbands, love your wives, agape. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So men, husbands in the relationship are called to love our wives with the type of love that God himself puts on for love. Most people married for other reasons. There were arranged marriages and most people married for political or social or economic reasons. And in the ancient Roman world, husbands could take on other lovers to handle the romantic side of things. There was no problem with a man doing that in the ancient world. There was tons of problems for a woman to do that in marriage. But men would most often find their sexual and romantic satisfaction in mistresses. The marriage was not about that. And then here comes Christianity upending the entire system, saying husbands Love your wives. And family, it is not surprising that women flocked to Christianity in the first three centuries in the Roman Empire. Because within Christianity and within the structure of Christian marriage, women were offered a dignity that was unheard of in the world that they were born into. Husbands, love your wives. Now, some men can hear that and they can say to themselves, I can check that box. I love my wife, and she knows it. I told her that on my wedding day. Not so fast, brothers. What does love look like? We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5 for a couple of minutes, and I want to point out five things, because here in Ephesians 5, Paul explicitly explains what loving your wife looks like. Ephesians 5.25, the first thing we see about how we love our wives is we sacrifice for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the bride, the church? How did he do that? He sacrificed himself for the good of you and me. He knew what we ultimately needed. He knew what was ultimately best for us. And he went and accomplished that. At great cost to himself, he laid down his life so that our sin could be dealt with and we could be reconciled back to God. So if, if you're in marriage and you're thinking as a man that this marriage and this family exists 
to further all of my ambitions, all of my dreams, all of my goals, all of my hobbies, all of my desires, and she needs to get on board with that, you're not living in a place of love. You are not loving your wife and demonstrating love to your wife. Loving your wife is taking the position of saying, I am here to sacrifice for her well-being in this marriage. Number two, how do we love our wives? Sanctify her. Here's verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now we're thinking to ourselves as good Christians, isn't it the Holy Spirit who sanctifies my wife? And the answer to that is yes. But as a husband, you are a primary instrument that God is using in the sanctification process for your wife. And the opposite is also true. We are sanctifying each other. God is using us to sanctify each other. But husbands here are called to imitate Christ's love, which is a sanctifying love. So we as husbands need to be praying for our wives and with our wives. We as husbands need to be encouraging our wives to spend time in God's word and to speak about God's word together with her. We need to encourage our wives to come to church. We need to encourage our wives to serve the Lord. We need to utilize God's word to admonish, correct our wives at times. We need to be involved and engaged in the process of sanctification. Your deepest goal for your wife, brothers, is not physical. It's not, I hope she can still look when she's 60 like she looked when she was 25. Your deepest goal for your wife is not financial. I hope that she can bring this much money into this marriage. And some of you are smiling or or, or laughing, but this is the way so many people sinfully think about relationships out there. Brothers, as men of God, our deepest goal for our wives is spiritual. That she might become more and more holy. That she might look more like Jesus 10 years from now than she does today. And now, again, all of this is true in the reverse as well. That women's deepest goals for their husbands should be their holiness that they grow in likeness. But the emphasis here for men is on loving their wives in these ways that Christ has loved us. Number three, prioritize her. Ephesians 5.28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. How do we love our own bodies or our own lives? By prioritizing them. By making sure that all of our needs are met, that things are taken care of. Every day when we wake up, the first thing we think about is, what do I need right now? For me, the answer is coffee. And I need food. And then I start going through the day. I need to pick out clothes. I need to do all these things. The priority for Daniel when I wake up, and this is just a natural thing, is Daniel. I think, start thinking about my day and the things that I need, and I won't let myself go without. Paul here in Ephesians 5 is teaching something deep and profound and mysterious about relationship. He's saying, husbands, you need to love your wives as you love your own body. What he's not actually saying there is, love your wives in the same way that you love your own body. He's saying something deeper. He's saying, love your wives as 
a part of your own body. When you get married, the Bible says that you become one flesh. And the way that Paul wants to orient and God wants to orient a man's thinking about his spouse is that it's not about one flesh with me. And so just in the same way that it's natural for me to say, what does Daniel need and prioritize Daniel? By the Holy Spirit's help, we need to grow in including our wife into that thought process every single day. You two are literally one flesh. Number four, nourish and cherish her. Verse 29, Paul writes, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. To nourish, of course, is to feed or sustain. To cherish. What does that mean? Well, our life is precious to us. Our life matters to us more than anything else in the world. We want to take care of ourselves. We protect ourselves at all costs. We invest ourselves. We do what's best for ourselves. Our lives are precious to us. And Paul is saying, listen, cherish your spouse. Cherish her in the same ways that you cherish yourselves. Make her precious to you. Brothers, she's a gift. She's your other half. Fifth and finally, be faithful to her. Verse 31 of Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You cannot love your wife by setting your affections on someone else. You can't. And so this means, obviously, no to adultery. But this also means no to flirting with other women. This means no to developing deep emotional bonds with other women. This means no to pornography in all of its forms and ways. Brothers, to be faithful to our wives, to be loyal to our wives, is to strive every single day to cultivate desire and passion and delight in that woman and that woman alone. That's what that means. That our hearts are being drawn toward them, that we're directing our focus and our attention to them. Loving our wives is not just about feeling a certain way, as we can see in Ephesians chapter 5. It's about living a certain way, sacrificially devoted to the well-being of another person. That's huge. And again, I don't have this all figured out, and I'm not doing this perfectly, but I'm committed to grow, and I hope that you are as well. Lastly, the second instruction for men is do not be harsh with them. That word harsh means to make bitter, or it means to turn something sour. Brothers, you want your wife to become sweeter over time, not bitter. And we play a role in that, in the way that we interact with them in our homes. This shows us that there is a particular flavor to a husband's leadership in marriage. It's gentle, and it's patient, and it's kind. It's not domineering, it's not bossy, it's not barking out orders, it's not cutting, it's not rude, it's not short, it's not cold. Do not be harsh with them, he says. And so we should be asking ourselves regularly, are my words and are my actions, are they making my wife sweeter or more bitter in this relationship? What is this flavor of leadership look like? Well, we need to look to Jesus. 
to get an answer for that. Jesus' leadership, as explained in Mark chapter 10, goes like this. Jesus calls the disciples to him and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It is domineering, it is top-down, it is bossy, it is short. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does leadership in Christ look like? Answer, servant leadership. That's what it looks like. And this applies in the home as much as anywhere else. Let me say it to you this way. Your wife stands in submission in relation to you. You stand in service in relation to her. That's what that looks like. She stands in submission in relation to you. You stand in service. Christ-like sacrificial service in relation to her. Family, can't you see the wisdom in this? Can't you see God's wisdom in what God is trying to construct within our homes here? Can you imagine the joy and the peace and the security of a relationship like this? Where a husband and a wife are bonded together for a lifetime. Unified in their commitment to live for the glory of Jesus, not their own glory or their own ambitions. With the husband being honored and respected by his wife. And a wife being loved and cherished by her husband. I would submit to you that this is a a recipe for a mutually fulfilling relationship where both spouses, husband and wife, feel affirmed and dignified and the children feel safe and secure and happy. And what more could you ask for when it's all said and done in your home and in your family? Okay, let's wrap this up. I'm going very, very long today. (laughs) Sorry. Let's wrap this up. I just want to communicate one last idea. Your marriage and my marriage are not exclusively about our happiness. Our marriages actually are intended to contribute to the happiness of other people who might be looking in at our marriage. And the way that it does that is that our marriages are actually a tool. They're an instrument. They're one of the most significant ones in the world to witness to non-Christians. In Ephesians 5.32, Paul writes about this in the context of marriage. He calls marriage a profound mystery. And he says that marriage, human marriage, your marriage, refers to Christ and the church. What Paul means in Ephesians 5.32 is that marriage is a metaphor or a picture or a parable of something greater than a man and a woman becoming one. And what is that thing that marriage is a picture of? It is a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. It is a picture of the gospel. God designed human marriage to vividly display these eternal, spiritual, significant realities. The love of God and the love that we have and grow in toward God. And so our marriages are designed to be this billboard, if you will, of the gospel. Of the nature of God's relationship with people in the body of Christ. 
Now, I know we're all sitting here thinking, I don't do that perfectly. And that's right. That's, that's the reality of it. None of us do this perfectly. But guess what? We don't have to. I want to show you a picture really quick to illustrate this for you. Throw this on the screen here. I have a question for you. Is this what Hawaii looks like? The answer is yes and no. Yes to a degree, but no, not exactly like that. That's just a painting. So that's not exactly Hawaii, but it looks like Hawaii. So it's yes and no. But what about this next picture? Is that what Hawaii looks like? The answer now is yes. That's a high-res photo of a sunset in Hawaii. So the second one, yes, that's exactly what Hawaii would look like if you were there. The first one, not exactly, but it's a close proximity. But here's the key. For most of us sitting here today, even the approximation looks good enough that it makes us want to go. If all I saw was that painting and you said, hey, this is what Hawaii looks like, I'd get a plane ticket. It looks awesome. And this is the way that human marriage is supposed to function. Does any human marriage perfectly display Christ's relationship with the church? No. But the key is and the hope is with all of our marriages is that our marriages display it to such an extent that people look and they say, you know what? I still want to go. If that's what it looks like to be in relationship with God, that level of love and faithfulness and commitment and forgiveness and grace, etc., sign me up for that. I want that. Family, our, our marriages matter not only for our happiness, but for the happiness of others and for the glory of Christ because our marriages are a picture of the truths of the gospel themselves. And so as husbands and wives live at peace with each other, loving, submitting, serving, honoring, cherishing one another, it becomes a picture of the beautiful relationship that is offered to everybody in Christ Jesus. And for that, we have to devote ourselves with all of our hearts to having healthy, God-honoring marriages. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.